1: Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Mark Antonacci, founder and president of Test the Shroud Foundation and one of the leading authorities in the world on the Shroud of Torin. His new book is Test the Shroud at the Atomic and Molecular Levels. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Mark.
1: My pleasure.
0: So today we're going to be talking about your new book Tests the Shroud and when we're talking about the Shroud of Turin which is actually considered or I guess we want to prove that it really is the burial cloth of Jesus. So can you explain to us exactly the significance of the of the Shroud of Turin uh why do the importance of it in terms of well I guess the whole Judeo Christian uh, the community, actually. So uh, give us a specific detailed description of what is it and, and, and its significance.
1: Okay. Um, shrouds are long cloth garments that have been used for thousands of years, especially in the Middle East, uh, to bury people in. The Shroud of Turin is a typical size shroud. It's over 14 feet long. And three and a half feet wide. If you look at some of the uh, uh, corpses and these violent scenes of death in the Middle East on television and things of that nature, look carefully. You'll see people wrapped in shrouds from time to time, even on the video footage on television. Um, the what distinguishes the shroud of Turin from any other? cloth or blanket or sheet or anything that's ever covered a, a person who's, who's, who's been dead or, or injured is that there's two full-length images of photographic quality uh, on the Shroud of Turin and 130 um, pristine, original um, blood flows and blood marks um perfectly aligned on these two full-length images that appear in cloth exactly as they would have appeared on human skin when they formed and coagulated on the body. Um, Its significance is um, when you start out studying the Shroud of Turin, you and people start looking into the issue is, is it the authentic burial garment of Jesus Christ, but you soon realize the evidence points to much larger issues. And, and you realize the, that the, the extensive amount of evidence indicates that the, the events comprising the Passion, Crucifixion, Death, Burial, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ um, may have occurred exactly as they're described in the Gospels.
0: So when was the Shroud first discovered? And, and where Turin is in Italy, uh, and I assume that's where the Shroud is now, but when was it discovered and, you know, what happened at, at the time it was discovered in terms of the controversy surrounding it? And why did they initially think, hey, this is the, the Shroud, uh, which was Jesus' burial cloth?
1: Well, it's it's been known in Europe since the 1350s. Um, It was probably kept in uh, Constantinople in centuries prior to that and in a town called Edessa, Turkey, where it was known as the image of Edessa. Uh, That is a very famous image whose descriptions uh, line up with the Shroud of Turin, with the images seen on the Shroud of Turin and uh, on copies of the image of Edessa as well. Um, The image of Edessa has a first century attribution to it, um, so you have to remember that the because the image was formed by radiation, it takes a while for the image to develop and appear on the cloth if if it If it occurs as the evidence indicates, this image would have taken a couple of Decades to be faintly visible on the shroud, uh, the analogy that I could think of is uh, 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 linen is is comprised of of a flax plant that 's been harvested and woven into um, a cloth. Uh, the main the main component of uh, linen is cellulose. The cheapest form of manufactured cellulose that I know is newspaper. If you set it out flat on your front porch and you leave it there for a weekend and you pick it up um, Monday, the outer layers of the paper is going to be more yellow than the inside of the papers, which is going to be more white. That's that's all that the shroud's image consists of is, is it doesn't consist of any material but in this case the, the, the sun the newspaper was exposed to air and sunlight for a weekend, whereas the shroud has been was exposed to sunlight probably for like a second or so. So the image takes a while to develop. So you while the shroud is mentioned, while it's mentioned in the Gospels that Jesus is buried in a shroud, they don't talk about an image being on the cloth, because there would not have been an image uh, when Peter and John ran into the tomb on Easter morning.
0: Well, as I Well, isn't it, I mean, most people at that time, in the time of Jesus, were buried like that in a similar way and were nailed to a cross. That's what they did. And and so what makes it distinguishable in terms of this would be Jesus's shroud, his linen cloth that he was buried in, as opposed to just anyone else at that particular time?
1: Yes. Um, these men, first of all, um, there's no other shrouds or, or blankets or sheets with any kind of images on them like you see on the shroud, and there's certainly no blood marks like you see on the shroud. Um, If you've ever cut yourself and put a bandage or something on it when the wound was fresh or when it was old, whenever you remove the bandage, no matter what time, uh, you never see a pristine blood mark on the cloth bandage that looks exactly as the blood did when it flowed and coagulated on your body. They've done experiments for about 120 years now. If the blood is wet, it's going to run in all directions and spread out. If the blood is dry, it's barely going to leave any kind of impression at all on the cloth. But the the features that you see on the shroud, um, many of them were not even visible until modern technology was applied to the shroud and you could look at it under a microscope or with photographic enlargers, with computer imaging techniques and ultraviolet lighting and all kinds of things like that that a forger could never have put in because he couldn't have seen them and that these and these things just don't occur naturally.
0: So you're saying we have the technology today uh, it, it, that is able to what? I mean, you can test mm-hmm. the. Could you test the DNA of the blood to say, well, this was Jesus' blood, the historic Jesus?
1: Well, uh, DNA testing was done on the shroud in the mid 1990s, and it indicates that it confirms what many other tests. Uh, with the blood confirmed, and that is, this is human blood. Um, And the DNA test indicated that this is ancient human blood. In the last 20-plus years, the technology has evolved further. And while you couldn't, the DNA could not say this is the blood of Jesus Christ um, because it doesn't have another uh, set of DNA to match it against, it could confirm what all the other evidence indicates, and that—that that is that uh, this is a man who has a Jewish heritage and lineage.
0: So, what are some of the other factors, indicators? I mean, what, how, how do we? It, first of all, you've dedicated, I guess, what the past twenty or thirty years to to this particular project, this particular. Uh, cause, um, and you're obviously very passionate about it. So what have you learned? I mean, what, what sort of has transpired over the past, I guess it's 30 years that you've been doing this, trying to <laughs> give credibility to the fact that this is actually Jesus's uh, burial cloth? Uh,
1: well, over the course of 35 years, y- you realize oh, with an abundance of uh, not just... Um, Evidence from the shroud, but from the anatomical and medical evidence on the body images itself. This this is a real human being who suffered real wounds. Um, <clears throat> the the for example, um, I don't want to get too complicated here, but
0: yeah, do, try guess, not to get too scientific. That's yeah. not. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. There's a wound on the man's right side. It's, it's, it, it matches a, a Roman javelin or spear. And it's right at the part of the heart, the right oracle, that fills with blood on death. And blood has oozed out of that wound. It's the largest amount of blood on the body. And it's in the correct location, and there's watery fluid that that comes out as well. This is exactly what would happen if a person was stabbed on the right side of his body after he was dead. Now, this was not known to modern science until probably at the earliest, the 18th century. Um, On the cloth, the wound appears on the man's left side. The high-resolution details that you see on the body images only occur after you take a photograph of the shroud. Then you realize the image that had caused so much attention over the centuries. The image on the cloth is a negative. What forger would know how to put an image correctly on the left side so it matches perfectly on the right side when you apply the, what is now a fairly simple technology of photography to the cloth, but this would have been four or five hundred years before photography is ever invented. What forger can do that and and how would it naturally happen like that? Um, this is just one example of, of things that make it extremely difficult or impossible um, to encode. Uh, the scourge marks on the man match a Roman flagrum. There's over a hundred of them. Each one of those scourge marks, it wasn't seen until late 20th century. They have invisible amounts of serum around the edges that show up under ultraviolet lighting and with photographic enlargers and microscopes, and they all have slightly indented centers and upraised edges to to match the little barbell-shaped ends of of the flagrum. If a forger had gotten just one of these wrong, it would betray his work as a forger. Every one of them is right, and you couldn't even see it for hundreds of years. Um, this is a and this is exactly what would have happened if a, if, if skin was was the surface for, for a flagrum and, and it shows up on the photographic positive. It is these are just one of many, many instances to tell you how these are unfakeable marks of a real human being who, who suffered these real wounds.
0: So what's the controversy? You've been studying this for 30 years. Give us the pros and the cons. There are people, as you've you, you're, you you're sort of been saying, that think that this is a forgery, that this actual linen cloth is not Jesus's burial cloth, but then those are on, I'm assuming there's the other side that no. said yes, it is, and now we have the technology to prove it. So I guess the first question is, like, who's, what are, give us, you know, the the controversy that exists, and then let's say, yes, it is this is the burial cloth, then what? What does that mean? What does that prove? How does that affect our, uh, actually, just the way our beliefs, our whole belief system in terms of theology? Two questions.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'll start with the last one, I guess. Um, Okay. There is no philosophy or religion, including agnosticism and atheism, um, in which... The central premises of that philosophy can be proven with objective and independent evidence. Uh, humanity has been debating for centuries um, the existence or nature or identity of God. Um, you would have evidence on the Shroud of Turin not only for the existence and nature, but the identity. Of God or the Son of God, and you would have evidence, extensive scientific and medical evidence for the central premises of a particular religion. Uh, you would have extensive evidence for the passion, crucifixion, death burial, and resurrection. And if if those events happened, you would have the only set of documented evidence for for a path for humanity to acquire life after death there's lots of theories of life after death but they 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 don't they all believe how you have to acquire this somehow uh separate from on your own we don't get that by evolution or something like that and there's lots of theories of how you acquire life after death, but this would be the only documented path toward life after death. That's a, that would be a big set of evidence that humanity has never seen before.
0: All right, now let's get to the first part of the question, Okay, uh, the controversy. Okay.
1: Thousands of tests have been done on the Shroud of Turin, and people who have studied the Shroud of Turin um, understand that really there's only one scientific test result that is inconsistent with the cloth's authenticity as Jesus' burial garment. And that was in 1988. A very isolated test was done indicating that the Shroud of Torn is from the Middle Ages. It is medieval, it is, and, and therefore it could not be Jesus's because it would need to come from the first century. And, and unfortunately, most people in the world are familiar with that result if they're familiar with the Shroud of Turin at all. For centuries, it was reputed to be a, a painting before modern technology ever examined the Shroud. Modern technology can prove it is not a painting. Modern technology, and that's where I'm referring to examining the shroud at the atomic and the molecular levels, could also prove that the isolated radiocarbon dating in 1988 was also incorrect.
0: So, given the controversy, um, obviously, you, I guess... Is there further testing that that's going on? Yeah. I, 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 what I assume is the testing gets more and more sophisticated?
1: Yes, um, well, I'll try to explain it um, as basically as I can. there's There's uh, over thirty very distinct and unique features on the body images alone. The only encoding agent, that could account for all of these features is radiation. The evidence also indicates that all of these features are found only on the body image, which is found only on the parts of the cloth that laid over the man and underneath the man. And if these features are accounted for by radiation, the source of the radiation could only be that dead body lying inside that cloth. And the kind of radiation that's indicated, believe it or not, is particle radiation, which scientists had not even dis- did not even discover until the 20th century. You could not forge such an event today in the 21st century even though we know what particle radiation is, Um, if you tested the shroud at the atomic and the molecular levels, believe it or not, you could prove whether such a miraculous radiating event occurred to that dead corpse who incurred all the wounds that Jesus did was crucified and, and died and wrapped in that cloth and And you would see that they would you can not only prove those events occurred but they occurred in the exact sequence that I just described
0: so if we want to know I mean you're the 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 uh, uh, the head of the test the um, president of the test the Shroud Foundation yeah um and so, Tell us, like the work that you continue to do, like on a day-to-day basis, in terms of of, of, of the shroud. I mean, I know you've written this book, et cetera. You go around, you lecture. Uh, what other kinds of things are you doing to, like, to inform the public about the work that you're doing?
1: Well, um, we raise funds for scientific work to be conducted on uh, in re- in regard to the shroud of Turin. Um, We have a series of tests that we have proposed to be undertaken on the Shroud of Turin. Some of those tests are only recommended after more technology has been perfected. Um, Some of the tests that we're calling for could be done now. Um, we, We also, the foundation, tries to disseminate the results and information acquired from the Shroud of Turin so that people can become better acquainted with this evidence. It, it relates to everyone alive because every one of us, unfortunately, is going to die. And um, so we also have a petition uh, to the Pope that says that encourages testing the Shroud at the atomic and the molecular levels. And and, and additional DNA testing, Um, as these technologies are are also perfected, um, you can see that on our website testtheshroud.com. But we're dedicated to undertaking even more and more experiments in relation to the shroud of Turin with 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 radiation and all the things that it it can discover. Um, For example, the the blood marks on the Shroud are still red. Whether the Shroud's from the Middle Ages or the first century, the blood marks would not be red. After a day or two, blood will lose its red color once it's exposed to air. The, The blood on the Shroud of Turin still are still reddish in color. This is just one example of what uh, testing indicates. Testing indicates the only way so far that blood has been able to stay red for periods of time, long periods of time, is if it's irradiated by neutrons. Um, neutrons is, is, is one of the principal components of particle radiation. Um, we would we, we have a series of other tests that would detect billions of items of radioactive atoms that would have been created all over the cloth from the neutrons that were released from the body wrapped in the cloth. It is very stunning and, and almost breathtaking that, that you could discover these kinds of things in the 21st century.
0: Well, it's interesting that you, your profession is, you are an attorney, right? From Yes. Um, and were you an agnostic before all of this, before the discovery and before your work and involved?
1: Yes, I was. You were? Yes, I was. There's another aspect to this evidence. It's very sobering as well.
0: So, and that's we have, how it struck me yeah, I mean, so what happened? What was the sort of the turning point for you? I mean, to go from we only have a few minutes left, but to go from you know, a non-believer to dedicating your life to proving that this is the the well, really the existence of jesus christ and and you know through this this burial cloth.
1: I will be honest with you, when I first came uh, to the evidence and realized its implications, I was scared. I mean, I'm pacing for a couple of hours, thinking, what, what, what have I got myself into? And then I realized in mid-step, all of a sudden, I said, well, wait a minute, stupid. If these events really happened, this isn't something to be afraid of. This, this isn't bad news. This is good news. So I, I sat down and then I could throw myself into it and keep going and, uh, and not be afraid of what, what the results may indicate because the results are quite consistent and almost unanimous that this is a real human being and these events happened in Jerusalem by Roman instruments and there's scientific tests that have been done that also aid that tells you the age of the cloth that are that are different from the carbon dating results they, they indicate it's from the 1st century carbon dating is susceptible to neutron radiation if a if an object has been irradiated with neutrons it will alter your radiocarbon dating by centuries and that's probably what happened in the case of the shroud of torn And that's the other great benefit from testing the cloth at the atomic level. You would absolutely refute the middle age date attributed to the cloth by that one particular testing procedure.
0: Well, we have to say goodbye, but to continue the dialogue or to continue the conversation, we want to be able to go to your website. So what is the website? Uh, Repeat that for us. And uh, uh, the book is Test the Shroud. At the atomic and molecular levels, uh, Mark Antonacci—he's the author. So, Mark, uh, give us the website where we can buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, and then also keep abreast of what you're doing at the at, at your organization.
1: Yes, it's, it's testtheshroud.org, and that's it. Yes, we keep it uh, straightforward as we can.
0: Great. Uh, well, thanks for being with us today. It was great talking to you, um, and good luck with the book. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station
2: where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to
0: join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Ellen Kahn from the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, we're going to be talking about a subject about transgender. Uh, uh, transgender children, actually. Uh, the topic is Attacking Our Family. Ellen Kahn has served as director of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's Children, Youth, and Families Program since 2005. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Ellen.
2: Thank you. It's my absolute pleasure to join you.
0: Uh, a fellow social worker. Uh, also, I guess, a fellow mom. You have two fabulous daughters, I understand. So
2: I do.
0: Um, they're on both days,
2: they're fabulous. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Well, I have three fabulous sons, and sometimes they're fabulous, sometimes they're not, but mine, mine are all grown up. But uh, that's what we're going to be talking about, families, right? Um, so, I mean, the topic today, well, maybe you should explain to the audience, Human Rights Campaign, in case someone doesn't know about the Human Rights Campaign, because I think that's important. Sure. Yeah.
2: Sure. Thank you. Well, the Human Rights Campaign, uh, often referred to as HRC, uh, is a national organization that is um, the, it's the largest national organization focused on achieving full equality and inclusion for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community for all Americans who are part of the LGBTQ community and uh, and and their family members and allies and people who care for them and who are, you know equally invested in fairness, inclusion, and equality. Um, and we do have a very significant um, uh, policy and political advocacy. Uh, um, uh, machine, if you will, and we get very involved in uh, helping to elect fair-minded, um, equality-focused uh, uh, elected officials. Um, we lobby uh, at the U.S. Capitol. We lobby at state capitals across the country. We try to achieve and protect um, advances in equality. Uh, we try to um, really, uh, you know, make sure that uh, when. Uh, legislations introduced that would in any way uh, create barriers to our ability to sort of, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, um, that we engage our members, we engage supporters, we engage allies in defeating those bills, and similarly engaging people in uh, supporting legislation, both state and federal legislation, as well as municipal-level Uh, legislation to advance equality, Um, and, you know, there are many examples of what that looks like, but I'll set that aside for now. We also do, um, we have a public education division here at the Human Rights Campaign, uh, of which I'm a part, and I oversee our children, youth, and families uh, programs, Um, and in the public education division, I like to say it's the work of changing hearts and minds, Um, it's about sort of reaching reaching parents, reaching uh, social workers, reaching uh, health care providers, reaching educators, school counselors, school principals, um, youth-serving professionals who work in after-school programs, folks who are, you know, p- interfacing with us every day uh, at home, at school, in the broader community to um, help understand and, and really cultivate a sense of, uh, of regard, appreciation, and respect for the diversity of our community, of the LGBT community, and really sort of taking that next door- step toward uh, creating welcoming spaces, inclusive spaces, um, so that our, you know, we can thrive, especially LGBTQ youth can can thrive, can achieve, can succeed, have the same opportunities of, uh, as other kids, and for LGBTQ adults, particularly those who are parents, um, that we can fully be part of school communities and you know really be included in uh, you know as a as as a maybe a sub- somewhat different family structure, but understanding that there are many kinds of family structures. So that's in a very in very general terms some of the work I do um, and the kind of mission that my programs have.
0: Yeah. I think your mission and the programs, and I have to say this and I say this in the most positive of ways, because you're a very sophisticated organization. You really do what you say you do. Uh, and I, I guess the next question is, how do you do it? I mean, changing hearts sure. and minds. You can, as we know, as social workers, you can change the laws, but you don't necessarily change people's attitudes. That can take a long, long time. So uh, that's obviously a very important part of the work that you do. How do you change those hearts and minds?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's so true. Um, you know, we we often talk about how you know the you can pass really good laws, um, and we know this from the history of civil rights—whether it's civil rights for um, for African Americans, uh, civil rights for women, um, uh, advances we've made in for a number for many uh, populations and people who have been marginalized for various reasons that. You know, passing laws and civil rights protections is its incredibly important. It's essential and often life-saving. Um, but that doesn't mean that when you pass, you know, a law... Uh, for you know women's voting rights, that su- suddenly there's no more sexism, or that when you pass laws protecting, you know, to desegregate schools, suddenly there's no more racism. I mean, we know that's absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. And so the same is true for you know, mar- you know, for marriage equality being perhaps the example most people would be familiar with, uh, a you know, fe- a change in federal law that allows same-sex couples to get legally married and to have the same benefits and entitlements that come with that legal marriage as, um, you know, previously only uh, men and women married could have. So, um, you know, while that is, again, monumental and has made, you know, a tremendous difference in people's real lives in terms of psychological, financial, logistical, practical stability and um, a sense of security and validity, um, it doesn't mean your neighbors suddenly love you. Uh you know if they were you know slightly uh you know had some anti l g b t q sentiment or just you know raise their eyebrows at the idea of same sex marriage, it doesn't mean that the law suddenly you know changed their hearts and minds and so you know one of the ways that we have found um you know a very powerful way to to change hearts and minds and move people sort of toward you is by just sharing stories about who you are and the lives you live. And what's important to you, and finding that common ground, and I think that is probably a universal way that we build bridges across all kinds of differences. Um, and so, just an example of um, one of the th- one of the programs um, I oversee is called All Children, All Families, and it's focused on working with foster care and adoption agencies of all sizes and all types to become more inclusive and welcoming um, of LGBTQ people like me who are interested in being foster parents or adoptive parents. And we also build um, competency and skills for the staff who are working directly with uh, LGBTQ youth who are in the foster care system and who are at times uh, at greater risk uh, and are, great, are more vulnerable because of their LGBTQ identity being in systems of care that are not always caring. And so we work with agencies, we, you know, we go into, we meet with the leadership of the agency, we talk about what it means to kind of really put in place a formal Uh, way of being inclusive and culturally competent. You know, having policies that expressly say, we don't discriminate, and all are welcome here, and this is what it means uh, to make time to train your staff, to build the skills and understanding of your staff who are working every day with young people. So that if a young person, um, they they have a young bisexual person uh, on their caseload, or a young person who's um, questioning their gender identity, and wants to explore transitioning or a, a young uh, gay-identified person, that they they know how to react to that, how to react with, um, with affirmation, with curiosity, without judgment, and how to make sure that that young person um, is supported and gets what they need around um, having, uh, you know, being safe, finding potentially finding a permanent family if that's what's needed and that their sexual orientation, gender identity doesn't become a barrier and that bias isn't getting in the way. And so we we get when we talk with folks in these uh boardrooms and in, 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 in classrooms where we're training thirty, forty, fifty, sixty child welfare workers at a time, um, A I wanna say, very you know, very pleased to say that there's a great appetite um, for learning about the LGBT community, people really do want to be better allies. They want to know what should I be looking for? What should I be asking young people how do we How do we really w- roll out a welcome mat for LGBTq folks? I mean absolutely, the vast majority. Want to do the right thing and maybe have not had the opportunity to learn. Um, there isn't, you know, do you this find, isn't, Ellen?
0: I, I just want yeah. to interrupt for a second because do you find that I, at least as a social worker, and even among friends, um, uh, my gay and my straight friends, uh, there's somehow they, there seems to be more difficulty in understanding, I guess, uh, transgender sure. children and i don't know if that's been your experience or not but uh, yes. you know if you can comment yeah
2: yes and i and i think it's really important to be honest about that um and and i you know i think we say lgbtq to because that is our mission. We, uh, we are committed to equality and inclusion for the uh, the sort of vastness, the vastness of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer communities, and it's a very diverse community. There are all different ways that people sort of bring forth their identities around sexual orientation and gender identity. I think you're right in in this particular way. Um, when we talk about sexual orientation, we talk about who you 're attracted to and th- and and lesbian, gay, and bisexual are identities and terms that are related to sexual orientation you 're either attracted to people uh of the opposite sex exclusively uh the same sex exclusively, or uh, you've been attracted to people of of both genders, maybe not at the same time or intensity over your life, but, you know, you're somewhere in what we call the mid-ranges. So people kind of get what it means to be lesbian, gay, or bisexual. It's basically about, you know, who you're attracted to, who you partner with, your sort of romantic, emotional, um, uh, you know, intimacy uh, relationships. Um, When we talk about being transgender, we're talking about gender identity, which is completely separate from sexual orientation. Um, and it is, it is literally about your, your inner sense of your, of, of your gender. And, you know, for most people, uh, when you're born and, you know, the doctor or midwife says, it's a girl or it's a boy, you know, they say that because they're looking literally at the genitals. There's no other information other than this is your anatomy. Um, most of us, you uh, or then grow up to have a gender identity that is that matches what that doctor or midwife said. You know, you're born, it's a girl, Everybody's, you know, it's a girl, let me get you a pink blanket, whatever, and that person grows up in it and, and feels female and identifies as female. But there's a certain percentage of the population for whom that is not true. And I think this is because so few people know a, a transgender person, um, unlike... You know the fact that I think most people do know a lesbian, gay, or bisexual person. You know, we we think that there's a there's a correlation between your own experience knowing people who are gay, lesbian, or bisexual and coming to understand that and be more accepting. Um, and we see that through just you know popular opinion on acceptance, those kinds of things. But fewer people know a transgender person, and so there's a learning curve. There's misunderstanding or lack of understanding. Um, but, you know, we really want to just help people understand what gender identity means and sort of how that, you know, uh, what the experience is of transgender people. And that's an area to where we really need to cultivate uh, knowledge because there's a lot of misinformation. Um, and to cultivate empathy and, and caring because, like like all of us, transgender kids especially, just want to be, just want to live as who they are. They just want to be accepted and loved for who they are. So I think you're right that it's it's there is a more of a kind of um, learning curve and just a lack of familiarity with transgender people and what it means to be transgender. And I think that there is among some people who aren't fully informed some skepticism about whether a three or four or five or six or seven year old child really can know what they're, you know, that they're transgender. And I'm happy to talk more about that. But I do, I did want to respond to your question. And really, I think, um, just acknowledge that for, for you and many listeners, that it's not, there's, you know, it makes sense that this is new and that it's hard to understand. It's, it's new for all of us, and it's only in the last few years that so many transgender people are sharing their stories and becoming more public, people like Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner and Jazz Jennings and now Gavin Grimm, who's going to the Supreme Court. So there have only been learning opportunities in, in the last few years for the general public to start to understand this experience.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to point out, and I guess and, and you're doing it, but it's it's sort of like some people just admit that they're ignorant. They don't really understand. They don't even mm-hmm. know what a transgendered person is. And then you can go the whole gamut, and then what if the, the, the people who are just filled with such anger and hate towards children, I mean, towards transgender children, that I find, can you address it? Because I'm sure you meet, obviously, you're involved with, the whole sure. gamut of feelings and reactions to transgender, and we 're going to talk about children today, so
2: sure. uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it's very painful um you know we uh, there are in the last couple of years, three, four years, uh, there have been um many parents of young transgender children. Who have taken their stories uh, into the public square uh, using social media, sharing their stories, being uh, you know having videos made or participating in videos uh, to to talk about their story, their family story, um, writing books about their family and their children, uh, coming onto TV shows, radio interviews, etc. And and um, you know these are parents who, um, like all parents, or we hope most at least most parents their their concerns every day are you know getting up getting your kids dressed to school packing lunch being part of their their children's lives their children's health well-being um children of transgender parents are no different and you know they they have the choice to go public uh versus just you know go through the day-to-day routine maintain your privacy and raise your kids and the reason so many of these parents are choosing to share their story and to speak up and to be public is that they're, they're, they are so misunderstood. Their children are very misunderstood, and they really want to change the world for their kids and the next generation of kids who are transgender. Um, and there, there's tremendous risk in that. Um, you know, many of these moms and dads who share their stories get um, what we call trolled on social media. You know, they get incredibly hateful awful messages, you know, referring to their children as these things, and uh, these uh, sort of aberrations, and um, little monsters, and your kid's going to go to hell, and what kind of crazy parent are you, and you're abusing your children, and, you know, this these parents know what they're opening themselves up to, but they also know that if they do not tell their stories, and if they do not humanize their children for the rest of the world, that nothing will change. Um, the, the, there is such venom, you're right, uh, hard to know. I think there's just, you know, I, I believe that many people have very rigid ideas about what it means to be male and female, very traditional, very rigid uh, ideas about gender roles, and when those things are in some way threatened or challenged, I think for a lot of people, it's a trigger to be, to you know, there's fear, there's, um, there's just a, a kind of a you know whatever, what I, I you don't want to get into like the deep psychological stuff around yeah. it but but there's a you know why should you be threatened by somebody else's gender identity uh you know it 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 doesn't if it doesn't affect your life um uh and you know it it's it's a real experience there's a growing in fact I I just want to point this out this is really quite remarkable um I'm not that shocked by it because I work with these organizations and I've seen what they do, but just for folks who are new to this topic, yesterday all of the amicus briefs for the Gavin Grimm case were due, and this is the first time the Supreme Court is going to hear a case regarding uh, transgender rights, if you will, and it's about Gavin Grimm, who is a high school student in Virginia who is a boy. He was assigned female at birth and always felt like a boy, always knew he was a boy, and ultimately, with support from his parents and a caring community, he transitioned to be authentically the boy he is. When you see Gavin and meet Gavin, there's no question he's a boy. And he was uh, using the boys' room at his high school uh, without trouble, and then there was a challenge to that, and he was told he couldn't because his birth certificate says female. He took it to court, he wanted the Virginia state level, and then it was appealed. And it is being, it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court of the United States later this spring. So, all the amicus briefs were written. They were due yesterday. There are, you know, well over 20 of them. I don't even know how many. One of the briefs, just to mention, to sort of put a contrast to what you were saying, Catherine, about people who are so hateful and dismissive and think this is all crazy and wrong, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, along with the Pediatric Endocrine Society, the American Nursing Association, the uh, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Academy of the United States, all of these national organizations who are mainstream organizations with the best interest of children's health at the core of their mission, an amicus brief, fully in support of Gavin Grimm being able to go to school, use the boys' room, participate in school life as a boy because he is a boy and that you know the so and we're seeing you know fifty three of the some of the largest corporations writing a brief in support of Gavin Grimm because they know that diversity and inclusion has been so important to the success of their corporations that yes, if you have a transgender employee a female trans employee a male trans employee, they use the bathrooms and locker rooms and restrooms and facilities consistent with their gender identity and you you will be blown away by the range and type of amicus briefs in support of Gavin Grimm. Um, And I hope that we can elevate those voices. I I hope that, you know, I would encourage you to invite a couple of parents to share their stories about their transgender children. It's remarkable. These families are incredibly brave. It is not an easy journey. I think it's important to say that, you know, plenty of these parents will be the first ones to tell you that they didn't, they ignored their children when they first started saying, Mommy, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, I have a girl's body, but I'm a boy. Others really tried to push back on that. Some of them regret that. Others understand it's a natural journey. But these parents come, they they educate themselves, they go online, they speak to experts, they figure it out, and ultimately they realize that in order for their children to be healthy and okay, they must give them the space to live authentically. And um, and the story
0: is beautiful. Yeah, it's it's very well said. And and speaking of having I had a, a couple on my show, adoptive parents, uh, and I'm sure you know the couple. And the twins, one was transgendered and one was uh, not. I, I can't remember the title of the book, but uh, from upstate New York, and then uh, they lived in Maine.
2: Okay. Do you uh, know Nicole who I'm May- talking? Nicole, Nicole Maines, and her, her dad is Wayne Maines?
0: I think so, yes. Yeah. It, but th- this was a set of twins, and it was very interesting, because here they are, twins, and uh, they, let me see, I'm trying to think. I think they were both... <laughs> I can't remember if they were both boys from the you know yeah. two, two twin boys or twin girls but one of them at a very early age as you say like 3 4 years old and, and you know and the parents are there they have both of these these kids are exactly mm-hmm. the same age And they really see the difference in the twin who identified as, uh, I think it was a female and, and, and she was a male. Um, so interesting. So those kinds of stories. Yes, I have, and it was, uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but those stories have to be told, I guess. And, and it does, it is a risk. It's not just a risk for the parents. You know, you're exposing your children. That's scary. Um, and your whole family, usually siblings as well, but... um,
2: That's correct. You know, one thing I want to say uh, that I think is really important is that um, transgender kids, really at any age, whether they're, you know, in kindergarten or first grade or they're high schoolers, um, what we see by, you know, really across the board is that the peers, their classmates, their friends, their peers, really get it. It is not they're not in any way being challenged by their peers. Um, it's it's really the work of of us adults um, to, you know, to educate ourselves, to to be to just open up our minds to, um, you know, try to better understand uh, what it means to be transgender, what these kids are going through, why it's so important to support them in being uh, able to live in their true gender identity. And honestly, like I'd say, you know, even the even those who really just don't get it or don't like it, there's still this sort of you know um you know do no harm sort of ethos, especially if you're a teacher or a coach or a counselor or you know working directly with young people. Um, you know, we all have some bias. We all have, all, there are some things that, you know, we're more familiar with, less familiar with, comfortable with. Um, but that sort of do no harm and that sort of making space for everyone is really important. Um, you know, you don't have to be an expert on what it means to be transgender. You don't have to love the idea. You don't, I mean, there are people who still don't really like gay people or think that we're all going to hell. And, you know, I can't change what you're going to believe in your heart or in your mind, but I can expect civility. I can expect, um, you know, safety on the streets, safety at school. I can expect that I, you know, have the same opportunities. And I think that's, at, I'd say at the very least, what we would ask of adults is, you know, this next generation, they really get it. Their, their sense of uh, the gender binary, their sense of, uh, you know, what it means to be male-female and their understanding of people who are transgender like it's 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 much more. Uh, it's just easier for them. They're growing up in a different at a different time. And I, you know, there are teenagers like Jazz Jennings who, you might remember, Jazz at age six was on the Barbara Walters show with with her mom, and she was really one of the first people, first kids, to talk about what it means to be transgender and what it actually feels like inside of you, to know that you're transgender. And then America kind of watched her grow up. And now she's got a show called I Am Jazz on TLC. She's written books. There was a, a doll just introduced uh, um, in her image. An actual—it's amazing, you know—and that really shows the progress we're making. Um, And And how far we've come. yeah. Ellen,
0: I hate to cut you off. We have have actually 15 seconds left, but I could go on and on, obviously, (laughs) with this conversation. This has been great. Uh, Ellen Kahn, uh, because she's a social worker. She's the director of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's Children, Youth, and Families program, and you can go online, the Human Rights Campaign. There's so much information, and there's so much that you can do. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Ellen.
2: Thank you for giving us a place. Enjoy your weekend.
0: You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.